Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Gathering Podcast. Hi, Imago Day. Michelle Jones here. And we are still in our series called Kingdom Citizens. Now, you've heard some spectacular sermons where Rick has talked about the importance of us not being right or left or religious, but rather us being political in the sense that our politics Um, our faith and our belief in the gospel, that is our politic itself. And Mike talked about the importance of seeing Jesus as uh, the suffering servant and how in suffering and love we actually exhibit or express our very politics and what that tends to look like. So today I'm going to continue this series, but I want to be very how the rubber meets the road, boots on the ground, kind of this is how we behave. So this sermon is is more about kind of our behavior, how we engage in the public square and how we express ourselves to others in this season. We're less than two weeks away from the election and it's getting pretty loud out there, right? It's, um, it's loud and it's messy and it's crazy. And I want to actually answer a few questions today. I want to answer six questions today as we move our way up to the election. How should we think? How should we speak? How should we argue? How should we lose or win? What should we divide over? And a sixth question which I'll talk to you about later. So as we engage people in politics, as we engage others, as we move up toward this election, um, how we exercise our rights and privileges, how we communicate, Uh, These things are important because they tell people what it is we believe, who it is we are, how we identify, what are our priorities. Um, In other words, it, it really gives people an idea of exactly who we are in a very three dimensional sense. Who our family is, what kind of home we were raised in. I know when I was Growing up, my mom used to tell us when we left the house, we were representing her. And she would tell us, don't be out in those streets and have people think that I don't know how to raise my kids. So we would go outside the house and she would feel that the way we behaved was a reflection on her. And the truth of the matter is, is the way we behave is also a reflection on our Heavenly Father, on God. Have we, um, have we forgotten who our Father is? Have we forgotten how to act? Is there a gap between who we are and who we're supposed to be and how we behave out in public? So to answer any question about how we are to live as God's people, we have to go back to the original plan that God had. And so we go back to the book of Genesis where God creates man and woman and then he gives them what he has created for them and then he unites them to one another. He says to them, I'm your God, and you were formed and shaped by my love. And then he gives them some things to steward, and he says, be faithful over these things. And he also says, be fruitful and multiply. And so they are called to care for one another. He unites them to one another. And so then the serpent comes into the garden, and what he does first is he separates the man and the woman from their relationship with God. He separates them from God by making them suspicious of him. 
like, you know, basically, don't trust him, trust me, trust what I'm saying. And then when he does that, they actually fail to steward the very creation he has put in their hands. He gives them this tree, says, do not eat from this tree. He tells them to subdue creation, and they allow themselves to be subdued by that very creation. And then once they do that, then the two of them kind of turn on each other. And the very unity that God created with them and his plan for them originally, it begins to be torn apart. So they go from being um, people who belong to one God, who are faithful stewards of his creation, and who are other-centered. They move from there to being people who follow after other gods, who then allow the creation to subdue them, and then they allow themselves to be self-centered and self-protective. You see it in the conversation that they have with God, because God says, didn't I command you? In other words, you've transgressed my command, and you have decided that I am not your God. Didn't I command you not to eat of this tree? And then Adam's response is, well, the woman that you gave me, he turns on her. He becomes selfish. And then she says, well, the serpent that was there, he did this. And so God's really big problem with them is that they've literally stopped being exactly what he has called them to be. So fast forward to the book of Acts, and we find the birth of the church. And in Acts 1, we find Jesus who's spending time and he's hanging out with his disciples and all of his people before he ascends to heaven. And, and there's a conversation that takes place in Acts 1 verses 4 through 8. On one occasion it says, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father, for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you, is, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So it's interesting when you look at this conversation because you have Jesus who is telling them, don't leave this room, wait. And then he says, then you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. The first thought that comes into the disciples' minds is, is this when the kingdom is coming? Is this when we win? Is this when we get power? Is this when our ambitions will be realized? Is this when we get our rewards? Is this when the kingdom is restored to us? And Jesus' answer is, is it's not for you to know when that's going to happen. That is God's, that's God's business, and God is taking care of his business. But he says you'll receive power, and what you'll do when you receive the power is that you will become witnesses unto me. You will become my witnesses. In other words, you will go out into the world and you will speak not only about what you have seen concerning me, but the evidence concerning me, and you will speak about me to other people. That is what this power is going to do for you. So isn't it interesting that Jesus says, don't say anything, stay up here in this room. When the Holy Spirit comes, then you're going to receive power, and then I want you to speak. So now we look. It's not the first time, by the way, that the disciples had been asking, when is the kingdom going to be restored to us? When are we going to have power? When, when are we going to sit at your right hand and at your left? If you look in Matthew, starting at about, at about chapter, I don't know, maybe about 
1516, you see all of these conversations where you've got Jesus, who are, he's healing the sick, he's caring for people, he's looking out for people, and you've got the disciples arguing about who's going to be number one, who's the greatest in the kingdom. You have this contrast. Do yourself a favor. Go from Matthew chapter 16 up through Jesus' crucifixion and just look at the conversations. If you've got a red-letter Bible, look at what Jesus is doing and saying in red, and then look at what the disciples and the people are doing in black, and you'll see this interesting contrast. But don't be too hard on them because uh, things are looking a little familiar, looking a little like that now. So all the way from Genesis to Acts, God is saying to his church, what I want you to do is I want you to use your expression, to use what you say, to tell the truth about who I am to the world. So from Genesis to Acts to 2020 through eternity, the plan has not changed. We are called to be what we were created to be, people made in God's image, his image bearers, created and belonging to him, faithful stewards of all that he's given us, and outward focused and other centered in the way we behave. So we're called to actually love our neighbors, loving mercy, doing justice. All of these things we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So with less than two weeks till the election, how do you think we're doing, church? Do we act like we are God-shaped and we belong just to him? Like we belong to him above all things, above our party, above our flag, above our country, our race, our money, our candidate, our friends, our opinions, our very lives? Are we faithful stewards of the gospel that he has given to us? Do people know what we believe and what matters most to us? or how we handle our resources? Do they know who we are by how we handle our privilege or our work or our knowledge or our words and our relationships? And are we other-centered and outer-facing? Does the love of God compel us to look for our neighbors? Does it compel us to care for the people in our midst who need us, who are hurting? Do we speak up for people who have no voices, or do we visit the prisoner, or feed the hungry, or weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice? You've heard me say it time and time again. We have one job, and that is to tell a dying and lying world the truth about a loving God who has created us in his own image and given us a life and a world to steward and called us to be other-centered and outward-focused. And when we allow anything or anyone other than the Spirit to shape us, the world can't see that the kingdom has broken in to the world. And when we're self-centered and we're telling the world that anything other than the gospel, then we're telling the world that it's every man for himself and that we are called to protect ourselves and to take care of ourselves and not to care for or to serve other people. And when we don't reflect the gospel by what we say and what we believe, are we still witnesses? Yeah, we are. But to what? To a party? To an ideology? To a flag? Anything instead of God? Who are we speaking up for and who are we allowing to speak for us? And when we give ourselves to anything, any one side against another side, what are we actually risking? Because there is absolutely something at risk here. 
Christine Marie Abusera is a behavioral historian. She studies what causes people to do violence in the name of politics or other social movements. In other words, she studies the moment that a person decides to pull the trigger or throw the bomb or scream and yell or attack or kill or do something. So when something happens, think Columbine or think 9-11 or think Dylan Roof and the Emanuel AME massacre or Micah Johnson who ambushed and killed five police officers or, or the recent attempt to kidnap the governor of Michigan, we often ask the question, why does something like that happen? But Sarah says that the better question is how does something like that happen? She says this kind of violence is not culturally endemic. She says we create it. Our day-to-day -day habits contribute to the violence in our environments. She lists the attacker's habits that contributed to what it is they did before a violent moment. And she says that they include the following. The first thing is that they place themselves in an information bubble. They actually begin to listen and to read only the things that agree with who it is they are. And they begin to express only those things that agree with who they are and what they believe. Then they take on this us versus them mentality and it causes them to separate themselves from other people. Then after that, they become um, the other people, they begin to other people by focusing on the differences between them and the people who disagree with them versus similarities. Now this desensitizes a person to what another person is going through and it also there's something in our brain that it actually makes us enjoy when the other person is going through pain so you might find that sometimes you have people who are um, who are not so much feeling one way about a thing um, and they just don't want to hear a different argument but there's something in their brain that is actually enjoying the suffering of the people who don't agree with them and the people who don't um, exist on the same side as them. And then finally they filter out anything that doesn't agree with them and they more readily receive and hear the things that do agree with them. And then the cycle continues because then that places them more firmly in their information bubble and it keeps them in us versus them and it makes it possible for them to other people. Now I'm not suggesting that you're going to go out and gun somebody down or throw a bomb someplace. But what I am suggesting is that the violence of hatred and racism and indifference and selfishness and vitriol and cancel culture and slander, that they are learned and they are not. And they're, and they're taught. That they're watered over time and they're nurtured in their darkness. And that we, like Adam and Eve or the disciples or Hitler or Dylan Roof or Micah Johnson, that none of us is immune. So look at the back and forth of social media conversations. They're getting meaner and they're getting louder. Dak Prescott, Dallas Cowboys uh, quarterback, just recently got his ankle dislocated when he got hit and it's fractured in two places. And the guy who hit him has been receiving death threats over social media because of this. The guy who tackled him in a football game, that's kind of what's supposed to happen in a football game. Outrage has become the new counterfeit of power. 
and a voice gets amplified the more we share and the more we repost opinions that we're not even fact-checking anymore, that we're not even looking to see the effects of those things because we've claimed our right to simply express the things that agree with us. So we're told to go out into the world and make disciples, but when we allow our partisanship to form us, then we've gone out and allowed the world to make us its disciples. Romans 12, uh, 2 says, Don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How do we know, how does the world know, that Jesus Christ came to redeem them if I'm boycotting and canceling everybody who says something that is a mistake or wrong or disagrees with my opinion? How do I talk about us having a ministry of reconciliation if I will not uh, continue to be friends with somebody because they're, they're a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter? How do I continue to actually believe that I've got a God who says vengeance is mine and I will repay if at the very drop of a hat I need to just get something said or I'm unfriending you because I disagree with you or you said something that bothers me. And so I'm judging people unworthy of the kingdom of God when I cancel them, when I condemn them, when I call them an idiot, when I say that there's a problem because they don't think the way I think. The very beauty of the church is found in the, in the ability of us to have differing opinions and different ways of doing things and we look different and we come from different stations and different nations and yet we all live according to one spirit, the same spirit, and have the same mind concerning that spirit in the gospel. So that brings us to our questions. And what I want to do is answer them more invitationally than informationally. I had a conversation with Peter Chase, who is the founder of the Water Project, and you'll be hearing more about them as we move into um, Advent season. But one of the things he said is that in his office, conversation breaks down when information stops being invitational, when it stops inviting us to become more and to do more and to be more. So let's look at our questions. The first question, how should we think? The first thing we should do is to get out of your informational bubble. Assume that you're more biased than you think and push through your initial inclinations when you hear something or when you see something. Make questioning a part of your news consumption. And as a matter of fact, um, I was reading an article once where it talked about taking an article and instead of listening to it originally, you know, where you see it in the paper, where it's gone through editors and things, try to find those writers of those articles and see what they say on their personal blogs, see what they say on their social media, because a lot of times what they mean to say and what matters to them gets filtered through an editor, gets filtered through a position that a paper is taking or a news um, a network is taking. So try to, try to consider your biases. Try framing arguments that you have from the other person's point of view. Actually challenge yourself to do that. Filter what goes in and what goes out of your mind through the word of God and the spirit versus doing that passive-aggressive thing that we sometimes can do where we take a Bible verse to actually support our political agenda 
And in so doing, what we do is we decide that we are going to remake God in our image, or we're going to remake God in the image of our party, or we're going to remake God in the image of our ideology and our inclinations and our allegiances. God is not American. God is not Muslim. God is not Christian. God is God. And we have to actually make the decision to shape our lives according to who he is and not the other way around. Before you place a label on somebody, put a Mago Day there first. Before you decide to hate somebody who disagrees with you, call them a Mago Day first. Before you ignore or dismiss somebody, decide that you are going to ignore or, or dismiss the Imago Day, the image of God, somebody who is formed and shaped and loved by God. And you are saying, I disagree with you, God. They're not worth loving. They're not worth paying attention to. They're not worth caring about. And that's okay if you're going to say that, but just own that that's, in fact, what you're saying. So that was, how should we think? Next question, how should we speak? Speak up for people and don't speak down to people. Listening always says more than talking does. So try not to speak as much. Try, um, when you do speak, speak the truth in love. Not the truth or love, because that's one of the things that we're fond of doing in the church too. We'll speak the truth and we say, well, I, that's this, just the truth. I'm just being real. I just need to get it said. But the Bible says to speak the truth in love, both and, not either or. We don't compromise and say that we want to love the things that we love or love the people that we love without speaking truth, and we don't speak the truth without paying attention to whether or not we love the very people that we're speaking to. If you cannot truly say in your heart that you love somebody that you're about to answer on social media, don't answer. Don't speak. Because your speech should come from a place of truth in love, not truth without love, and not love without truth. And truth, not makeable arguments or looking to build yourself up or tear that other person down. Think about the goal of what it is you're saying. Jesus had told his disciples that we are defiled by the things that come out of our mouths. Not the things that go in, but what comes out. What we say defiles us. And one of the things that I, I am very convicted by a lot is a passage in James where he says, in uh, James 3, starting at verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My dear brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring bring forth fresh water. Before you decide that you're going to speak, ask yourself, what kind of vessel is actually pouring forth what it is you're going to say. And one of the things that happens when we speak for one side against another or we become partisan is that as we speak, 
we find ourselves mute, we find ourselves unable or unwilling to speak truth that comes from the other side. We won't agree with the other side when they have spoken something that's true if they're not on our side. And what does that make us as the church? It makes us silent. It makes us deaf to things. It makes us mute to things. And ultimately, it makes us blind to the very spirit and the things that are in our midst that we're supposed to pay attention to. So how should we argue? Give your opinions a rest. Or at the very least, give them a pause and ask yourself if expressing it will bear fruit or if it's just going to satisfy you emotionally. Stop reposting and retweeting the opinions of others, especially if they don't draw people closer to God. We speak for a reason. God speaks for a reason. He is intentional in the way he talks. And we who are made in his image should be intentional about the way we speak and that our words should give life and not bring death. James 1:19 and 20 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce righteousness that God desires. Anger itself is not the problem. What it drives us to do can be the problem. So take responsibility for your anger. Don't just get angry and then decide that you're just going to punish because God says vengeance is mine. So what are we to do when we become angry? There are a million things in here that you're supposed to do when you get angry. But he says be angry and sin not in a nutshell. And so that's what we're called to do. When we're angry, it's not a problem to be angry. But what is driving your anger and what is driving your response and what is driving your desire to say whatever it is you need to say in anger? How should we win or lose? Good question as we come up on the election. We humbly sit in attention. We walk by faith and not by sight as God's people, as kingdom citizens. So we don't lose our stuff when our candidate loses, right? Or we don't think ourselves justified if our candidate wins because we know that they are not our savior. Jesus Christ is our savior. Even when we see God's will done here on earth, we, can't, we can rejoice in the truth, but we need to do it humbly because we have to remember that we may know the truth and we may see the truth today, but we don't know the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Isaiah 55, where God says that my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. There's so much more going on in the mind of God and in the purposes of God than we are ever going to be able to know. And James actually says that you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So we can't get caught up in our pride about whether or not we win or we lose. We know by the gospel, ultimately, God wins. And so we live like we believe that. We live as people with hope. We live as people who know that what God is going to do and what God has planned is not going to get foiled by an election in 2020, by COVID, by, by anything that happens. Nothing is going to, to get rid of or destroy the plans of God. So then what should we divide over? The short answer 
is nothing. We are given freedom in the Holy Spirit so that we can love one another and so that we can love the world. In John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you are to love one another as I have loved you. In John 17, Jesus said that he, that the world seeing us as one, it would cause them to believe the gospel. It would cause the world to believe that Jesus was sent. So why would we even consider dividing over anything? It is our oneness that shows the gospel to the world. We should be pursuing that oneness intentionally looking for our commonality and not our differences between each other. Our commonality in Christ, in, it, it happens in the most uncommon places, and that is the beauty of the gospel, that I can look like I look or be who I am or come from where I come from, speak the way I speak, and that I can have so much in common with somebody who is in a completely different country, in a completely different nation, a different station, a different understanding, a different upbringing, a different everything. But we have commonality in who Jesus is. We cannot continue to de-other people. We actually have to, to consider that the ability to live with our differences is a very part of our witness. We shouldn't be leaving churches because we disagree with what somebody said at church. We shouldn't be leaving a church because somebody hurt our feelings. We should actually show the world what it looks like to become reconciled with one another. We should be able to show the world what it looks like to continue to live together no matter how different we are. The kingdom is made up of differences held together by the Spirit and in common faith in the gospel. And so before we label people, by other people by labeling them socialist or left or right or, or liberation theologist or charismatic or whatever the label is you put on a person, ask yourself, is that label othering them? Is that label separating them from me? Or is that label bringing them closer to me? And if your answer is that it is separating you from them, then you don't use the label or you figure out a way to live with that person and find the commonalities. Because we all have one thing in common, for sure. We are all made in the image of God, and we all belong to him. Now the sixth question, which I didn't say before, which I'm going to ask now, is the hardest one, I think, for most of us to answer. And that is, how should we vote? In order to answer that question, I want to read a passage from Philippians. Paul had been talking to the church at Philippi about what it means to actually live a life that is what he called worthy of the gospel. And what he says is, therefore, in uh, verses 1 through 4, he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, there's that oneness thing, if any comfort from his love, we are love-shaped and we belong to him, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing, nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each other, Looking, but each of you looking to the interests of others. 
We are God-shaped, faithful, other-centered, outward-facing. The great commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So who is your neighbor? Whose pain have you been formed to see? Whose cries are your ears trained to hear? Here's what I'm suggesting. When you vote, vote for your neighbor. Don't vote your own interest. Don't vote for your own life, for your own family, for your own money in the bank, for your own neighborhood, for your own party. Vote for the other. Vote for the sick who need healing. Vote for the voiceless. Vote for the prisoner who needs visiting. Vote for the poor who need provision. Vote for the widow. Vote for the orphan. Vote for the child who cannot speak for him or his or herself. Vote for your neighbor. What would it look like if politicians campaigned to the church knowing that that's where your vote was going to go? How would they campaign? How would they speak? How would they ask for your favor, for your vote? We are called to love God and love others. We are not called to seek our own interests. We are not called to seek our own ambition for ourselves, for our own sake only. All the things that God calls us to do, all the things that we have to leverage, we leverage them for God and for others. And in so doing, we ourselves find ourselves. We ourselves are formed. We become the people that God has called us to be. And so we're called to live as people who know that as long as we trust God, that we, in being formed by him and allowing him to love others through us, that we are taken care of, that he is taking care of us. So vote like God is working in you and vote like God is working through you for your neighbor because your vote, like your money, like your party, like your privilege, like everything you have, your resources, where you were born, all the things, none of it is ultimately about you. It is about God and it is about others. We have one job. So between now and election day, let's give our opinions a rest. Let's listen more and talk less. Let's leave our information bubbles and live in the tension without giving in to our fears. Let's be outward facing and other centered and gospel shaped. And let's steward what God has given us faithfully. I know I sound crazy, um, but a vote is a really powerful thing. But what is power for if not to be a witness? Let's pray. Father, as we move our way to the election, help us to remember that we belong to you. And because we belong to you, we're going to be just fine. Lord, I ask that you would convict our hearts when we want to um, express ourselves in a way that is not fruitful or in a way that is not godly or in a way that causes you not to be the thing that we witness to. Father, continue to shape us. Continue to shape us by your love and then show us what it looks like to have our 
our stewardship and our giving and our behavior and our relationships be shaped by that very love. Lord, I ask for the health spiritually of your people. I ask you to give us hearts that that only want to be compelled by your love. Show us what it looks like to be patient and to hesitate before we speak. Show us what it looks like to not cancel people and not leave people simply because they disagree. Lord, show us what it looks like to be kingdom citizens, to be the people of God in a world where you're almost invisible sometimes. Make us people who speak the truth in love. Make us people who care for the widow, for the orphan, for the voiceless, for the prisoner, for the sick, for the poor. Father, just just help us to remember that we have one job, to tell a lying and dying world the truth about you. I thank you, God, for how you love us, for that you love us. I thank you for forming us. I thank you for every sacrifice you've ever made. Show us how to do the same in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.